there is balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work's in Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Psalm 29, ESV. Well, hello and welcome to another Balm in Gilead podcast. I'm Grant Baker and sitting across midway through the country from me in uh, the beautiful state of Missouri is my co-host, Brian, who has uh, a fairly long, lengthy um, uh, paper, really. I mean, what else do you call it? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he'll he'll, right. he'll tell us more here. I'm, I'm sitting here enjoying the blizzard but um, uh, that we're having coming through Oklahoma right now. But uh, if, if any of you are wondering, um, yes, today is a Briasode. That it is. Yeah. Uh... So yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get into it in a little bit later. But uh, as I was working on this episode, I started writing a little bit, writing a little bit more, writing a lot more, and it ended up turning into a, you said a seven-page paper. Um, it's a seven-pager, yeah, single-spaced. That I will present to you all. College later. ruled. College yes. ruled. Uh, but first, I do have uh, some follow-up, um, and this was okay. Uh, do you mind uh, kind of telling the story behind this follow-up? Oh, yeah. Um, so a, another wonderful podcast out there is called the PresbyCast. They have a chat group that you can participate in. And I was talking over there about uh, the Psalms and the Psalm model and our podcast with one of the uh, denizens of the chat group um, known as Odd Deacon on Twitter. Great guy. Uh, just he, he kind of looked at our Psalms model and he uh, was uh, 
you know, asking some questions about it that um, I thought were, you know, a really good questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously Brian and I are, are always looking for ways to like sharpen this, make it clearer um, and uh, understand how it can better help the church create, you know, good music. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I, I kind of wanted to, to talk to that. I think he said something along the, the lines of, I, I don't know that I would say that these Psalms can't even be a model for us to use in writing music. Yes. Specifically because Psalms are scripture, which means that they are prophetic and we cannot mimic that. Uh, yeah. And we shouldn't mm -hmm. try to mimic that. And, and to that point, I want to say, I fully agree. Fully agree yeah. with the idea. We're not writing Psalm 151 here. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're not trying to continue the Psalter as if it was inspired scripture. And, and again, I also, you know, even in the middle of this, this past season, uh, I've kind of changed some of the language that I use. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is that I'm trying to figure out what is the, uh, the authorized way to worship God. Um, because that would mean that this model I'm coming up with would be scripture. And that's, that's bad. Um, <laughs> But I, I did want to talk about this and, and what I mean when I say the, uh, the psalm model. You know, we, we talked about how psalms are scripture, but they're also poetry and lyrics. And um, when we use the psalms as a model, we're doing that spe specifically for the poetry and the lyrics. We can use the psalms to find out what themes uh, are available, what themes should we be writing toward, and um, and you know what what types of uh, what types of emotions are you know are the kind that God approves of as far as worship goes? Um, what kind would delve into sin? Um, you know the the Psalms help us to kind of parse all of that out. But we can't forget that the Psalms are Scripture, and uh, and we we absolutely cannot emulate that. Uh, and I wanted to, to kind of talk about Psalm 13 for a second. It begins, it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And as David wrote that, uh, he was clearly feeling far away from God. But when uh, we look at this specifically as scripture, we know that God was so close to David that he was actually writing those very words as David was, was having those emotions and feeling abandoned. And so when we see the interwoven truth, we can't emulate that. When, when I write something about how long, oh Lord, all that I can do is reference Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 13. Um, and as I reference Psalm 13, I can kind of show that I believe that God is close, but we're not going to be able to emulate that, that closeness of God actually being with me, writing the very words I'm using to, uh, to explain my feeling of abandonment. And so, um, as a result, I can't just simply say, you know, Oh God, why have you, why have you forsaken me and leave it there? Hoping that my, my reader will, will think about how close God actually is. I, I have to, uh, actually acknowledge God's presence. I actually have to say, um, you know, I, I have to actually say that, that God is close, that I believe that God is close for, for that to enter into, into the song because God isn't writing those words. Um, I, I do still believe that the Psalms are a sufficient guide to writing new songs. Um, but we cannot write new Psalms. The canon is closed. 
and new songs are simply new songs. Uh, we can emulate the emotion, the truth, the promises, and fulfillment, and the content of the Psalms, but we can never emulate the prophecy or word of God uh, found in the Psalms. Right. It's more the ideas in the Psalms help us expand beyond the happy, clappy, you know, crazy type songs that are so, you know, plentiful in today's worship services uh, and help, you know, jog you out of that rut of, um, oh, got to produce another, another, you know, (laughs) raise your hands type, hallelujah type song, you know, and, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm talking a little down about, about stuff like that, but, uh, and, and praise songs actually do, you know, that is one of the things uh, that we see in the Psalms that, that they're written for, but let's not forget about Thanksgiving. Let's not forget about lament. We had a big mm-hmm. discussion about that uh, a couple of episodes ago now, uh, episode 22, um, yeah. because it was on Psalm 22 was the Psalm of the day. Yeah. So lament is, it's just an element that is absent from, from music today, but it was so prevalent in the Psalms. And, uh, and so when we are writing songs, we need to, uh, we need to use the full, theme of the Psalter and not just the ones that make us feel good because it's only half the story. Um, and I was going to uh, initially do an icebreaker about talking about my, uh, my Spotify playlist on the Psalter that I've been working on, but I'm pretty sure that project is going to be an epically long project to finalize as more songs get written. And eventually I think just the poor Bishop Hooper soundtrack, I think will will be sufficient, but, um, and somewhat of a joke, somewhat not. Um, but I will probably at some point just post a link on that on our website and I'll announce here when I do, but I didn't, I'm not finished with that, with that project yet. So I'm going to talk about something else. I'm going to address the songwriters out there. So this isn't, uh, necessarily, being directed to those who are picking and choosing music, but specifically those who are, are writing music. So uh, let's talk about writing songs as an act of worship. Um, I'm going to propose a theory that by its nature can never be proven by observation, namely because we are not God. Uh, I do not wish to act as a Holy Spirit, and so I'm not going to be making any absolute statements, um, but I, this theory helps create an order to things and I have seen in the past few years. Um, here, so here it is songs written as an act of true and genuine personal worship to God are generally, if not always better and more useful to the church than songs that are written mechanically for the specific use of being sung in church. So that, there it is. It's out there. That's my theory. If you are just writing to write the music, if your end goal is to produce a song, then your song is not going to be as good or as useful to the church as the as a song that you write where the end goal is to worship God. Um, and so, uh, this isn't to say that songs that are intentionally written that I have a I've got a deadline, I've got a song that my pastor has asked me to write. Uh, I have I'm going to plan out this song. I'm going to write it intentionally. It's not to say that can't also be genuine worship. I think that songs that you are intentionally writing out 
should have the end goal of I'm going to worship God through this experience. I also think that most songs need to be intentionally written. That if you are just going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come inside you and inspire you to write a song, you're going to be waiting a real long time um, because he doesn't he doesn't do that anymore. Uh, right. But uh, it is to say that songs that are inspired by a formula and a deadline will be less useful than songs inspired by dedicated study of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to refer back to the psalm model. All of the psalms were written as acts of true and genuine worship to God. Um, if anything, they were written as an act of obedience as the Holy Spirit empowered them to write the songs. They obeyed that um, that rule, really the command, so that the Holy Spirit could inspire them. Because if anyone had disobeyed that command, then we wouldn't have that psalm. Uh, so looking back at the uh, the origin element, none of the songs coming from a known cult are true and genuine worship to God, uh, especially to the God of, of the Bible. So if a song coming out of the, um, the Church of Mormon uh, the, or Jehovah's Witness or um, even... N-A-R? See, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there because <laughs> that isn't a quote-unquote known cult. But you went there, and so I'm just going to walk away. Um, I was going to say, you know, like... Send your cards and letters, too. Send, yeah, send, yes. That's why I put your address. There is at balmcast.com. Um, yes. So any songs are, that are written from a place that we can all agree upon, this is a cult. Those songs are in no use to the Christian church. Any Christian church trying to use those songs and trying to... I don't know, convert Try them. to club. Yeah. Uh, yes, that one. That's a good Latter-day Saints jig. Um, anyone, any church that's really trying to push those there, it's, it's not, it's not any good. It's, it's like, it's like Israel at the foot of Sinai bowing down to a golden calf and saying, this is the God that saved us from Egypt. It just, it is, it cannot be true and genuine worship. Um, that said, all other type one songs fall somewhere in between those two. Uh, any song that is not from a known cult, but also that was not handwritten by God. Um, those are the songs that must come as a genuine act of, of true worship to the God of the Bible in order to be useful in church. And I want to be clear, um, that I, I'm not taking this time now to call anyone out as writing for a cult or referencing a formula over scriptures. I don't want to call anyone out by name. This this isn't for us to, uh, as I'm saying, I'm not writing for the people who are picking worship or picking songs for their church. Um, so I don't, I don't care about people that are right at, at this point. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to talk to, worship leaders unless they're writing music for their own church. But when push comes to shove, I, Brian Emerson, I am not the Holy Spirit. And I will never be able to prove my suspicions of anyone else's motives. Uh, so as you are writing music, this is between you and, and the Holy Spirit, not between you and me or between you and any other music minister or any other church congregant. This is just between you and God as you're writing music. And, and I'm speaking to you writers uh, and I'm urging you to hold fast to the truth of Scripture uh, when you are writing, 
Worship when you write, and don't write when you are not worshiping. I do believe that all true and genuine worship will always follow an encounter with the truth of God. All doxology comes from theology. Uh, while this will be most genuine following an encounter of God's word or his special revelation, it, it can certainly follow an encounter of his general revelation, so long as it also lines up and leads toward uh, that special revelation. I'm going to give an example. The hymn, How Great Thou Art, begins with two verses specifically talking about the general revelation, depicting the vastness of God and the creativity of God. Uh, the first verse is more of the teleological argument. God is so in amazingly big. Look at all this look at all of the planets and the space and the heavens that he created. Second verse is I'm walking through this forest and I'm just seeing the beauty of God's creation. Uh, and they line up with Genesis one and two. And it leads in verses three to the crucifixion and in verse four to the return of Christ. And so we can see this full argument of how uh, this general revelation leads to special revelation. And uh, whether or not you believe that the psalm model is sufficient and should be followed when writing music for the church, it cannot be argued that the psalms are an excellent model for writing poetry and lyrics. Uh, along with being an excellent model, the psalms are also truth from the Bible that can lead us to worship. So even if we don't believe that the psalms are the psalm model that we should be following when we're writing music, um, they are a fantastic source. And and if you choose to reject the psalms and don't read the psalms or don't try to emulate the psalms, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, it's just it's right there for the taking. And so that's that's what I have to say. So I got some questions mm -hmm. and or, I mean, you up above said while that the Psalms are genuine worship, what do you mean by the act of writing them being genuine worship? Cause you and I both would say mm -hmm. along with the Westminster confession that, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And mm -hmm. so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Yeah, and um, and I would I would argue that the psalmists were all worshiping God as they wrote their songs. That they wrote the mm -hmm. songs with the intention of worshiping God, and and as a result, as they wrote their music, that was an act of worship. It was it was a sacrifice of their creativity. It was you know that the time that they put into it, um, that was, that was time spent in, in worship. It was also obedience. They were obeying God as he commanded them to write these songs. Now we, part of this, not emulating this, or part of this kind of idea of we can't emulate the Psalms is we are not obeying God in the same way that David obeyed God when we write new songs. Uh -huh. um, David was commanded by God personally to write those songs. I am not. I'm, uh -huh. I write because I enjoy it. I write because I feel like I've been given a gift in writing music, um, a gift through the Holy Spirit, but it's not anywhere close to the same. And so we can't, we absolutely can't conflate those two. Um, but I do believe that um, we know that we know that David wrote more songs than just the ones that ended up in the Psalter as well. I mean, he, 
uh, at least I, I believe that he did. I, I, I highly doubt that the first song he ever wrote was Psalm 23. Uh, mm. he, just like I don't believe that Oholiab and Bezalel had never touched uh, metal or fabric before they constructed the tabernacle. I believe that God gave uh, David the gift of music and we see the evidence of it when he's playing the music for, for Saul to soothe his soul. Um, we also mm-hmm. see snippets of other songs that he wrote that weren't in the Psalter, um, like at the end of first Chronicles, you know, there's just different, there's different things. I, I, I don't believe that every song that David wrote ended up in the Psalter. I know for a fact, every song that Solomon wrote did not end up in the Psalter. Only one out of 1,100 of his songs ended up in the Psalter. And that isn't to say, maybe that was his only worship song. Maybe everything else was just a love song. It was just CCM. To, a love song to, he wrote one love song per concubine He <laughs> and, and wife. He wrote one song to God and then 99 for, I don't know, um, his horses. Who knows? And chariots. And chariots. <laughs> so, you know, who's to say that, we don't know. We, we don't know. But I, I can't, as a songwriter, I, I don't believe that every song David wrote ended up in the Psalter. I do believe that he probably wrote plenty of songs as worship that were not, um, that were not inspired by the Holy spirit that were just his, his reflection of God and his love and his law and his world and his creation. And, and, and I believe that those were acts of worship, um, as evidenced through goodness, uh, good necessary consequence because he had to hone his craft somehow before it could be used for this altar. Well, I guess what I'm getting at mm-hmm. is I think we're talking about corporate worship and mm-hmm. we're talking about uh, private worship mm-hmm. or have, being worshipful. I mean, yes. Romans 12, two is in my Bible too, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I could check. Okay. <laughs> I have a lot of Bibles, um, as most Christians do. Yeah. So Romans twelve two says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that what is good, acceptable and perfect will of God. So what I meant was Romans one, uh what I meant was Romans 12, verse 1, is in my Bible, too. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, fully acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe that there is a argument, too, for private worship. And, I, and, yeah. and that's really what I was trying to drive at, was, okay. yeah. was, was that... You're not saying that these songs are like composed as an act of worship, like that. That w- might be a you know. Today I'm going to stay home from church because I feel like I should be writing a song, and that's the only way that I should be writing a a, a song. And I I think that's what gotcha. I'm getting at. Yes, you're trying to dispel the myth that worship is for one one to two hours every Sunday, and that's it. Well, that, that worship is a is is really a, a lifestyle, and we have our corporate worship, but we also have our you know our family worship. We also mm-hmm. have our private private worship. You know, we most decisions that we make will either lead toward worship or sin, 
and uh, and we should be making decisions toward worship. And the most important of those is the corporate worship. But what I think yes. you're talking about here, and you mentioned true and genuine personal worship to God. So, yes. um, and this is a question for um, RPW, or regulative mm-hmm. principle of worship, is how, well, in what way does scripture regulate our personal worship? And I don't know the answer to that because I'm fairly new to this Presbyterian kind of stuff, right? And the confessions um, and whatnot. So I don't, I don't know how to answer that, but maybe you have a good answer. Well, uh, as you said, you're new. I'm also pretty new. Maybe some of our Presbyterian listeners will speak up and swap us on the head or whatever if we get this wrong. But um, I, I think that all of our worship should be directed from Scripture. I think how we worship in public should be how we see public worship um, lived out as well as commanded in Scripture. And as far as private worship, I think the same thing. What we see in private worship, that's how we should uh, that's how we should conduct our, our private worship. Um, I... I I don't, I don't necessarily think that, um, that we can worship God any flippant way. Like I've heard a lot of people talk about their creative ways that they worship. Uh, specifically one that I've heard time and time again is, um, I painted this picture and in painting this picture, that was my act of worship. And it's one of those things. It's like, the tabernacle was was a tapestry of beauty, and it was done uh, both in in physical excellence, but it was also done in obedience. and And so, I think that we could have an argument for visual arts that are um, for glory and for beauty. You know, I mean that 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 phrase for glory and for beauty was in reference to Aaron's clothing, um, and yeah, and, and I think God. Many other yeah, parts think, in the tabernacle too mm-hmm. were, were right. Yeah, yeah, they're all they're all done very very lavishly, and the the temple was even more lavishly uh, decorated. Everything was gold plated inside of the temple. I mean, it was for for glory and for beauty is something that I, I absolutely think God cares about. And so, a visual artist, I think that they can do. I think that they can emulate beauty of that God has created. You know, I can do a landscape of something beautiful that inspires me from God. And, and I think that that could, um, it, it, you can praise God through that. And, and if you can praise God through that, I think you can worship God through that. And we see that in, in the Bible, but it, but nowhere in the Bible do we talk about, um, the visual arts being, done corporately. And by that, I mean not being enjoyed corporately because the tabernacle was a place people went to corporately. The temple was a place people went to corporately, but they, it's not like, all right, for church today, we're going to go and we're going to paint a picture together Mm. and that will be our act of worship. Uh, that we don't see that anywhere, but I have heard preachers talk about, this is what we do at our church service. While the sermon is going on, my daughter will stand off to the side and paint a picture during the service. And that is 
part of her worship. And for that, I say, no, there's no place for that type of thing in the church because that is man defining what is worship. Um, and, and, and I mentioned before, I think, I, I know, all genuine worship will come as a result of, of encountering God's truth. That's just how worship is. All depictions of worship in the Bible flow from, uh, from an encounter with God in his truth. And even if it's just God is writing this psalm through me, that is an encounter of truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it's, it's, that's hard. That one's a hard one. You know, how, how do I know that this is worship and how do I know that if this is just mechanical, you know, I, I can't judge that. Like I can't, I can't judge if you are worshiping. I can just judge if I am obeying God. Right. And if, I, if I'm doing this because I think it's a good idea or if I'm doing it because I have had an, an encounter with truth and I must respond in this way. Um, so any- what is an example of private worship in the Bible? One example of personal worship that I think could be defined as that is when David was playing uh, the, the harp for for Saul mm-hmm. he's he's playing to soothe Saul's soul but I think he's playing um, he's playing for the glory of God also when David is dancing and we'll get into this in a little bit as well kind of uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this passage but uh, when David was dancing in the street in front of everyone mm-hmm. that was a personal act of worship uh, it was not a corporate act of worship I think there were many people having private worship together but it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a worship service. It was a ceremony. It was a celebration. But it pleased the Lord. And so if it pleased the Lord, then that was an act of worship to the Lord. Um, but it was not something that everyone was involved with. In fact, Michael disapproved of it. Um, well, this is what is so interesting to me about it, is that, Throughout this podcast, this is a big question, right? Mm-hmm. Is what is worship? Yeah. And uh, we know from the Westminster Com- Confession of Faith that there are three types. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read here Westminster Confession uh, 21, which is the part mm-hmm. that talks about of religious worship in the Sabbath day. Paragraph 6, which says, Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. You know, your prayers aren't going to matter more because you're in church, which is a popular myth. But God is to be worshipped everywhere, in spirit Mm -hmm. and truth, as in Mm -hmm. private families daily— and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God, by his word or providence, calleth thereunto. Um, Saying God is the one who calls us to worship. That's why uh, you go to church, you have a call to worship, and that is not the pastor calling you to worship, that is not each other calling you to worship, but it is God himself calling you to worship. Um, 
And, and as far as the uh, Westminster Divines, what they put in for each one's secret by himself, they, they mention Ephesians 6.18 and Matthew 6.6. 6. And Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So there's some sense like there is this praying, and it says praying always. Well, we're not always in church with the gathering of believers, right? So there is some sense where we are to be praying um, by ourselves, you know, because we're uh, praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Uh, Matthew 6, 6 says, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So, again, there's this idea of prayer in, you know, in the closet. You know, people, some mm-hmm. people will even have, like, a prayer closet that they build into their home or whatever, but. I don't know that that's necessary, but uh, again, the Westminster Confession says, you know, it's not the place that is, you know, making prayer work, so to speak. Uh, it's who you're praying to. Right. And, uh, and so to amend kind of what I said, as far as my theory goes, my, my theory is all songs written as an act of personal, uh, true and genuine worship are going to be most useful um, in the church as corporate worship. So long as the the song itself was intended for, for corporate worship, Mm. a song like, uh, for example, most of the songs I write are intended for me to sing to God. They they aren't corporate friendly. They, 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 the keys aren't necessarily keys that people can sing in better. Um, the style of music isn't one that's very friendly to congregations. It's it's just for me. It's the songs I enjoy listening mm-hmm. to. I enjoy singing them over again. My kids love them. Could they be done in church? Sure. Some churches would probably do them if if they were famous or whatever. If they were famous, most churches will just do whatever. But um, you know, it's that's not their intention. Their intention is to be used in, in private worship mm-hmm. for me, um, and, and that's how I've, how I've used them. That's how I've I've enjoyed using them. Um, but that is, uh, but songs that are written for the use in corporate worship should be still a byproduct of, of personal worship. Um, we'll talk more about this in our next episode, I think, but there's a song in particular that you and I listened to recently that uh, we heard the the writer talking about his writing process of the song and the way he talked about the writing process it sounded more of a mechanical writing of i think he even said i knew as soon as we started writing the song it was just going to be the best song out there um it was just the best song it was already a great song and i don't know it is the the kind of pride that he put into his words uh made it sound like it wasn't necessarily an act of, of true genuine worship. I don't know if it, it could be, it could have been, I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm just saying his presentation of his, of his writing process absolutely felt like he thought a whole lot of himself as he wrote the song. Yeah. We'll get into the next week. Cause I don't want to name names in this episode and you'll probably forget. I've said anything about it next episode, but it was, good <laughs> <time>. <laughs> There's a bit that they do on 
Top Gear some a lot of times where they say in their super secret facility yeah. just off the M1 <laughs> on the Kensington exit or whatever, <laughs> you know. Anyway, uh, that's what that reminds yeah. me of. Anyway, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. He's written... He's written a lot of songs, I believe, from a place of genuine and true personal worship. I don't know about that particular song. I also that's one of my least favorite songs he's ever written, and we'll we'll get into that next week. So, uh, so now we're moving on to our main topic. So, uh, we uh, the icebreaker went a little bit deeper than intended, which is fine. The I, icebreaker was yeah. Think of that more like a order platter. It's the opening yes. act. The opening act. An opening act. Act one. Yeah, we should start doing that. You know, there's other good podcasts that do that. This American Life has acts. Interesting. It's just so so artsy. All right. We should. So we're getting onto the main topic, which has very little to do with the Psalms. Um, However, the way that this is tying in to season two. The reason we were talking about psalms in the first place is we were trying to get into you know the regular principle of worship. We know that psalms are are commanded, um, and so we're trying to get to you know the bare bones of it all. This is another topic that is talked a lot about in in reference to regular principle of worship, and that is just music ministry in general. Um, you know what is music ministry? Are we allowed to have a music ministry? You know what? What should music ministry look like uh, in regards? What's a ministry? What is a ministry? Mm-hmm. You know what? What? What do these look like in regards to the regular principle of worship? And so, typically, typically speaking, if you go to a church, you're going to have this guy that's called the quote-unquote music minister. Maybe he's the worship leader. Maybe he's the worship pastor. You know, the we, song dude. Yeah. Uh, there's also some other fun phrases like uh, choir master or music director, chief musician. So we're going to talk about these, you know, these words and, and I'm going to in a little bit make some, um, some categories and it'll help us mm-hmm. look into this a little bit more. But a lot of this discussion kind of stemmed from a comment that I had once that was where in the scripture do you find the, uh, the qualifications for the office of the music minister, at which point you will look in the scripture and you will not find anything. There is not, uh, there are no qualifications for the office of music minister. We have the qualifications for the office of the pastor slash elder slash overseer. Those are three words used interchangeably in the new Testament. We also have the office of the deacon and that's it. So pastor, elder, overseer, or deacon. Um, a lot of the qualifications for both of those are more or less identical, but there are some key differences. We'll get into that later as well. So where does music ministry fall in? And that's kind of what I want to get to. I started this idea. Uh, it started off as a, you know, just some, some notes and it ended up into really, this is a position paper. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to present my uh, position paper, rough draft. Um, Grant, you can feel free to interrupt me at any point that you need clarification or anything like that. But more or less, I'm just going to present this, mm. present this paper, and then we're going to talk about it. And there's probably going to be a significant portion of this episode that will get cut, and it will get 
uh, uploaded as bonus content because I imagine this episode is going to be a little long one. <laughs> um, so it's probably already long already, and we're just now getting started. Uh, so according to the regulative principle of worship, all parts of worship must be either completely and specifically prescribed in the scripture alone, or they must be deduced from the whole council of scripture through a process that the Westminster Confession of Faith calls good and necessary consequence. And that's found in the, uh, in, I guess, chapter one, paragraph six, I think is how they, the language that they use. I'm new to this as well. Um, so good and necessary consequence. I listened to a lot of stuff on that this past few weeks uh, in preparation for this. And uh, it's a phrase that basically just means the whole council of scripture points to this, uh, to this idea, even though there is not one specific place that talks about it. The go-to quintessential good and necessary consequence would be the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we gather through the whole council of scripture that, that God is triune, but there is not any one place that specifically states it. So um, this paper is going to be an argument that music ministry is, uh, is permitted through good and necessary consequence. Um, in the New Testament, we have clear qualifications for the offices of pastor, elder, overseer, and the deacon. Um, however, we do not have qualifications for the role of music minister or the office of music minister. I'm going to use the word role to talk about music ministry because there is not an office. And I want to be clear with that. The reason I'm using the word role is I'm not trying to make an argument for the office of music ministry or music minister. Um, but uh, this raises a question. Uh, is the office of music minister an unbiblical construct that should be abolished from the Christian church? Or did we as a church deduce that uh, through good and necessary consequence? I believe that that latter uh, phrase that we deduced the role through good and necessary consequence is correct. That, uh, that, the office of music ministry is probably something that is a, a construct that we should be wary about, but the role of music minister is something that we can deduce from good and necessary consequence. You may be wondering uh, why I'm even bringing this up in the first place. The role of music minister is an assumed norm in the church today and has been for hundreds of years to some capacity. Uh, there is likely a good reason that the church at large has adopted this role, but I personally have never heard a case for it before, and I doubt that many of you have. So I decided to take upon myself to, uh, to write an argument. Now, I've not looked into the origin of the role of a modern music minister, uh, but I have dug deep into uh, like the pertinent passages of Scripture and I believe I've uh, walked away with a case for good and necessary consequence in regards to this role. In First uh, Chronicles 15, and this is the account of the Ark, uh, of the Ark of the Covenant being returned to the tabernacle where David dances, and uh, and Michael didn't particularly like it. Um, but in the Chronicles account, we uh, 
we get a little bit more detail about what's going on. In 2 Samuel 6, we just get a very quick story, but in 1 Chronicles 15, it goes really deep into the uh, into the institutionalization of the temple musicians. Uh, this is where Asaph uh, kind of enters the story. He's one of the psalmists. And particularly in this, we, we have this role of music director introduced. In the passage, we are told that the priests are to carry the ark on the poles, specifically because the Lord commanded it. it it's pretty detailed about this, about why we should, why they should do that. And, and it's in reference to they didn't uh, carry it by the poles, and that's when Uzzah reached out to study it and, uh, and died. So uh, in the passage, it specifically goes into... Uh, why they, they carry it by the poles. Um, but then this is in a direct contrast to the kind of the description of some of the reasons why the temple musicians were, um, were institutionalized. And, and I'll get into that in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to say that this passage is different from Exodus 31, where God calls Aholiab and Bezalel by name. Uh, it is also different from the sacrificial laws and duties of the priests found in the book of Leviticus. There is no direct uh, prescription for music ministry that God outlines and David follows, but we do see God's approval and subsequent commands to sing and praise with instruments later on in the scripture, specifically in the Psalms. So I, I say all that to, to kind of set this passage up. Um, God did not come down and say, David, you must institute music ministry. But we believe that David was still in, it was still obeying God and was still, um, was still properly worshiping God by doing this because, um, you know, to sing songs of praise, we needed people to kind of organize that. Like that's, that's necessary. If you don't have anyone organizing it, then it just, devolves into chaos. So I'm going to read this lengthy passage. Uh, I kind of skip around. Um, I'll read a couple of verses here, a couple of verses there, but I'm just going to read this straight through and we'll put in our show notes what I am reading. This is all from First Chronicles 15. Cool. Uh, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one But the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And uh, David said to them, to the priests, uh, You are the heads of the father's house of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him according to the rule. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. Chenaniah, leader of the Levites in music, should direct the music, for he understood it. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and the singers, and Chenaniah, the leader of the music, and the singers. And uh, David wore a linen ephod, so all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of horn, trumpets, 
and cymbals made, and made loud music on harps and lyres. Um, so I'm going to go back and I'm going to read. This is First Chronicles 15.22. It said, Chenaniah, leader of the Levites in music, should direct the music, for he understood it. So he had two qualifications. Uh, he was, uh, His two qualifications, he was a leader of the Levites, and he understood music. Right. And so... And- I will add there with the Geneva Bible notes on that particular passage, it does mention that it says that is to appoint psalms and songs to them that sang. So uh, there's this guy and he's he's leading the music and he under because he understands it uh, and he's also saying, okay, we're going to sing Psalm one nineteen today, the whole thing. So yeah. all the verses. That was a popular day. <laughs> Did they skip verse three? Hmm? Did they skip verse Did you three? Skip, who who skipped verse three? Most Southern Baptist churches. Oh. <laughs> ah. Uh, yeah. This is a poem, but we're only going to read three stanzas. Yes. One, two, and four. So this minimal qualification is a stark contrast to the carrying of the ark on the poles. It, and when it talked about the ark carrying the ark on the poles it said that we're going to do this because the lord commanded us also i'm going to remind you we did it wrong earlier and so we are going to make sure that we do it right and so you have been chosen by god to do it that is why you're going to do it so it had this kind of big long thing about carrying the ark on the poles which they should they should get that right because god was very specific about how he wanted the ark carried on the poles um but then he said and chenaniah you will lead the music because you get it like that was it. Like that was his qualification. He got music, and so he got to do the music. Um, but it, there's also this practical difference. Uh, it, it, or sorry, it reads as a practical difference between the direct prescription and good and necessary consequence. So there's this idea, there's this good and necessary consequence. We need a music director. We need someone to lead the music so it doesn't devolve into chaos. Chenaniah, you understand music, you're, so you're going to do it. Um, David realized how important music was to God, and so in obedience to God's revelation to him, he instituted the priestly musicians to aid in the singing and also to praise God through their playing of instruments. So when I think of instruments, my brain automatically goes Psalm 150. I'm going to read uh, verses 3 through 5. Praise him with a trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. Um, this is just a very large list of a lot of different kinds of instruments. I, I don't believe these are the only prescribed instruments. I just believe that God is is throwing in a lot of different kinds of instruments and saying, use them all. Um, today, you know, we undeniably have commands to sing in the New Testament. And just like in the Old Testament, communal singing requires a leader who knows about music in order to do so in an orderly fashion. The question then becomes this. Does the priestly role of music director continue through to the New Testament, or is it fulfilled along with the rest of the priestly duties through Jesus' once and for all sacrifice? That really is the question that, that this whole argument um, you know, is, is, is penned by. If we say that all priestly roles in the Old Testament were fulfilled, then there is no new priestly role in the New Testament to uh, 
to be a, a music director. So someone might understand music, but because they're not a priest, they do not meet both qualifications, and therefore they cannot. Uh, there cannot be a song leader. Uh, but I want to point this out, and this is where things kind of get, I'd say, a, a little bit tricky. I'd like to do a lot more research into this idea. I don't want to just pull something from a hat and say, I think this works. But this is an argument that, that I came across that um, that I think helps with this idea. When God created the Mosaic Covenant, he referred to the future established nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests. Shortly after this, God instituted the priesthood and Aaron was ordained as the first high priest. So before Aaron is ordained as the high priest, God says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the, t- for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Uh, now we're going to jump to Revelation. And we have some similar language, and it's used twice. And this is in reference to the already and newly established church. So in Exodus, it was kind of a, you will be. In Revelation, it's, you have been. Um, and in Revelation 1, uh, in verse 5 through 6, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then in uh, chapter 5, it says, in uh, verses 9 and 10, And they sang a new song. So this is the, the, the living creatures. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them, talking about the people that were ransomed, uh, for every tribe and every tongue, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So John says, you made us a kingdom of priests. The living creatures, in reference to the church, said, you made them a kingdom and priests. Both of these are referring to the church. So the church has been made a kingdom and priests um, by the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus is our perfect great high priest, we no longer require another priest to intercede between us and God. We can all boldly approach the throne of grace because we have all been made priests by the blood of the Lamb. If then all Christians are made priests, it stands to reason that all Christians who understand music or play an instrument are qualified to lead in music during a worship service, especially considering the reason the music director was set up in the first place. He wasn't required to intercede on behalf of the tone deaf or something silly like that. He was set up so that the singing could be done so in an orderly fashion. Jesus' work on the cross doesn't change that. We still need someone to lead the music or else it will devolve into chaos. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is discussing the use of spiritual gifts and how to use them to build one another up in an orderly way. Among the list of gifts is music leading. It says in uh, 
in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, it says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Uh, the tongue and the interpretation, those are things that kind of fall into tricky territory. Uh, there is very, very detailed and specific instructions for tongues and interpretations following that verse. Uh, but as far as... Um, it, it talks about the lesson in the Revelation as well in later in the chapter. It doesn't expound on the hymn. That's one thing I kind of wish it did, but it doesn't. And we have to take that for what it is. Um, it's, uh, if someone has a hymn, they can bring a hymn. Like that's, it's, I think it's as simple as that. It follows into, you know, we don't need to let the, the tongues and the interpretations get in the way of learning the lesson or the revelation. It definitely talks about that. It also, you know, the revelation needs to line up with the rest of scripture. The lesson needs to line up with the rest of scripture. So the hymn probably needs to line up with the rest of scripture. I think we can safely say that. Uh, We don't need to just do hymns because the hymns don't need to get in the way of the lesson, the revelation, like the tongue and the interpretation. But it doesn't give us very specific instructions on that. We, We do have, you know, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs listed twice in the epistles as well. But I just find that very interesting that in this list of spiritual gifts, it talks about bringing a hymn. Um, This passage was not meant for church leaders only, but it was for the whole body of believers. And in this passage, all who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have a hymn to bring, are invited to bring it. And at this point, it becomes important to make a distinction between the role of the music director or the choir master. I, I am equating those two terms. And the role of worship leader, worship pastor, music minister, or something like that. So um, when I'm talking about the employed music minister, uh, this is, I, I believe, something different than uh, than the choir master or the music director or even like a chief musician, something along those lines. And, and I want to clarify the difference between those two. Um, so the front and center role is that of the music director, the choir master, or the chief musician, the person who is literally singing the music and leading the rest of the congregation. This person is also often responsible for choosing the songs from a previously approved list of songs, often from a Psalter or a hymnal or from a limited repertoire of music that has been vetted by uh, a pastor or the elders. Um, like Chenaniah, there are only two qualifications. Must be a member of the church, must be proficient in music. That's it. This puts a limitation on the 1 Corinthians 14 passage in that only one person is allowed to bring the song. But that's really no different than uh, what we have just one person bringing the lesson. So the pastor brings the lesson, the uh, song leader brings the song. and uh, And so that's I would say very similar. Uh, There are also allowances for special music and such that if someone has a song, they can bring it to the chief musician and they can be allowed to play it during, um, you know, the offertory or something along those lines. Uh, The other role is the worship director. Uh, I'm going to use that term. I think that's the term that best describes what I'm talking about. 
it's a much broader role than just music. So it's not the music director, it's the worship director. It may also be shared among the elders. So the elders might share in this uh, in this kind of role of the worship director. Um, but the important thing is that the worship director is a pastor, either an associate pastor or an assistant pastor. And those are two words that just basically mean, has have they been ordained already or are they going to be ordained at some point um you know who is responsible and this pastor is responsible for vetting new music choosing and often leading the liturgy and uh and plans and organizes the worship service so by this i mean uh they are going to be responsible for uh for listening through new music and deciding what is appropriate for their church they're going to be the ones that are uh, choosing, you know, the um, like the confession of sin, the assurance of pardon, different things along those lines. And often they are also going to be the ones that are kind of organizing the whole worship service and making sure it all kind of fits together. Um, this isn't a this is often a teaching role. So you're they're the ones that are choosing the words that will be spoken. Um, and so they are the ones that are ultimately in authority over the church, uh, whereas whoever's reading them isn't necessarily the one speaking with authority. That's kind of a, that was a tricky situation as well that we can get into at a later time. Uh, most often, in, mo- in most churches, the same person fulfills both roles. This is why I think there's some confusion. Uh, some churches do split the role especially when the music minister does not or cannot meet the qualifications for pastor as outlined in first Timothy and in Titus. Most notably, I'd say um, they may not have the ability to teach and they may not be a male. Um, so the song leader doesn't have to be a male if they are not teaching, if, they, if all they're doing is, is leading. And, uh, and I'll get more into that as well in a little bit. But I'm going to read... The qualifications for pastor found in First Timothy and in Titus. Uh, in First Timothy uh, three one through seven, it says, "This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must uh, be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle." not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil." In Titus uh, 1, 5-9, it says, This is why I left you in Crete, uh, that you may put what remained into order, and uh, point elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may not so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Um, if you've ever heard a sermon on these two passages, I hope that the pastor told you the vast majority of both of these lists are the qualifications for being in the church, not this, not just leading it. This is how everyone in the church should, should, uh, for the most part, it's how everyone in the church should, uh, should strive to be. We should, no one in the church needs to be a drunkard, violent or quarrelsome or a lover. Of right. Money. That's, uh, especially true for the leaders, but that is absolutely true for everyone. Um, you know, so most of these qualifications are still going to hold true for the, um, for the song leader simply because they should be true for everyone who's in any sort of leadership position. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, that a drunkard should be up in front of the church representing the church. Um, probably not. Probably not. And, and, and so a lot of these still apply to the, um, to the song leader, but specifically, um, you know, the husband of one wife isn't necessary for it. Um, and the ability to teach is not necessary for this position. It's not a teaching position. Um, and, um, you know, so it's, it's tricky. Um, recent convert. I mean, that's, you probably shouldn't have a recent convert up in front of the church for the exact reason that it says, but as far as I am concerned, uh, for the music leader or for the choir master, the, the chief musician position, the mm-hmm. only biblical qualifications for that position would be uh, a member of the church, probably in good standing. So a member of church, not under discipline and um, able to do music. For the most part, if you're a drunkard, you're probably going to be under church discipline. You're not going to be in good standing and therefore you aren't going to be qualified. So that's a conversation for each church to have. Um, but ultimately the reason for the two roles, uh, so the role of the music leader and also the worship leader, worship director, um, the reason for the two roles is that one is purely about musical ability, whereas the other is about teaching with the authority of scripture. The pastor may not be equipped or qualified musically and the musician may not be equipped or qualified pastorally. So at times it is necessary to split the roles. At times it may also be too much for one person to accomplish both roles. For instance, a small church or a church plant uh, may uh, may not be able to pay for a full-time worship leader, or they may not even be able to pay for a part-time worship leader. But uh, two volunteers may be able to fulfill the role together. A uh, major detriment to splitting the role is the lack of unified vision or philosophy of music ministry. An artist with no ministry qualifications is much more likely to focus on uh, worshiping in the spirit, while a minister with no artistic qualifications may be more likely to focus on worshiping in the truth. Um, but focusing on either one of these at the expense of the other will lead to a weak and ultimately disobedient vision. Uh, 
This isn't to say that teamwork can't be accomplished or that one person is more likely to accomplish balance on his own, but it is to say that one person on his own won't be at odds with himself on the issue and someone truly qualified in both areas is much more likely to want to pursue that balance. Um, I would probably wager to say that a pastor with no musical ability would be more likely to strive for the balance than a musician with no pastoral ability. Um, but that's, that's an opinion. Ultimately, there is a practical need for the role. Just like in the Old Testament worship, there are clear qualifications given in the Old Testament that are echoed to some extent in the New Testament. While not specifically prescribed like the roles of pastor and deacon, uh, we can see an argument through good and necessary consequence. Finally, the role becomes more clear when you see it as two separate roles with separate qualifications that can be accomplished by one person or two people working together. Earlier I read from Psalm 150 in reference to using instruments in worship. Uh, I will say that I believe my argument for the role of music minister also works for musicians. I believe you are free to utilize whatever musicians you have available that are able to pursue excellence in music as long as they are Christians and in good standing in the church. This does not require a full band each week, nor does it prescribe which instruments are allowed and which are not. Ultimately, if someone is a Christian and they are skilled in an instrument, that instrument should be allowed to participate in a band setting. Obviously, this has its limits. I am sure that an accordion paired with a steel drum would add, uh, would add very little the prosody of the lyrics, and uh, it would probably be, be a distraction to the whole assembly. It may be difficult to discern what is actually allowed through good and necessary consequence, and the lack of direct prescription can easily lead uh, to agreeing to have nothing. For many, the choice to have little or nothing instrumentally would not require a chief musician or choir master to lead. Those churches may be content to simply, uh, to simply sing. And I do believe uh, that is within their liberty. However, these churches do usually still designate a song leader to choose the songs, keys, and tempo. And this leader would still need to know enough about music to accomplish this task. Uh, I'm going to give an example right there. Um, in the, the RPCNA, they will have someone get up in front of everyone and usually with, with a pitch pipe to get the, the, the right key and then to choose the songs from the Psalter that they're singing for the week and to, to I, I don't know that they choose the songs they necessarily, the songs. but, so, yeah, but they, um, the songs. they they definitely lead the songs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and one notable person that I know who does this is Rosaria Butterfield, who, as we mm -hmm. all know, is not male. So, um, this is an example of a song leader does not need to meet the requirements of the pastor because it is not a teaching position. Um, I do want to talk briefly about fog machines and light shows. Oh, uh, yeah. Many churches. That's my favorite part. I know, right? Many churches equate the argument of any instrument in air quotes with quote unquote any element. This is where we have to point out that the Bible does prescribe the use of instruments in the Old Testament temple worship. Uh, no good theologian debates this. The issue of, in debate is whether or not that prescription carries into the New Testament Christian worship. Nowhere in the Bible is there a prescription for setting alterations in worship. 
There was the lighting of the candle and the burning of the incense within the, um, the holy place, but that's not the same thing. There was a very specific purpose for those elements, and, those, and that purpose for those elements has been fulfilled in the work of Christ. They were, to point to the, they were to point to Christ, and he fulfilled them. So we no longer have to, uh, to light the incense on the, the altar of incense. We no longer have to light the candle. You know, we no longer have to do those things because Christ fulfilled those. Um, however, those were absolutely in no way part of the corporate worship service. There's only one priest in the room ref- uh, performing ritual acts to point to Christ. It was not a setting alteration that was like, all right, we're going to turn the lights real low, but we're going to light the menorah. That's going to be our lights. You know, and we're going to burn a whole lot of incense so that it uh, causes the smoke effect that makes us feel really close to God. That's not what was going on. The smells and bells. Smells and bells. Um, all that said, smoke machines and light shows do not align with the regular principle of worship. They are not authorized as a part of Christian worship. I just wanted to make sure to cover that because those arguments kind of go hand in hand. Like, well, we can sing this new song, but why can't we have a fog machine? Songs are prescribed. Fog machines are not. Well, it's definitely something that bear and you know, we're, we're taking this all the way over to instrumentation and worship and whatnot, which is not really, I didn't, I, I didn't feel like that was the, the point of the piece that you've written here. It's not and the main point. No, it was really more to talk about the, yeah. you know, the role of a music minister, and um, something you clarify. And I, I guess more to that end, something that you helped clarify for me earlier via text was, yeah. um, how did you come to the conclusion that the office of music minister is distinct from the offices of elder or deacon? Yeah, and um, because you know that would be quite a departure. That would right, be quite a from, departure. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's why I wanted to be, be clear and say, you know, there is no, uh, there is no office of music minister. There is office of pastor and that pastor can wear one of the hats of the worship leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a pastoral hat. There is a musician hat. I've known plenty of music. I've known plenty of pastors who just, who aren't good musicians. Don't, don't want to be a musician, have no, desire to do anything with music. Um, and so they appoint a musician to lead the worship. I've mm-hmm. also seen lots of musicians who have absolutely no pastoral qualities who are asked to be a music minister, which is a pastoral mm-hmm. ability, which is a pastoral role. Um, mm-hmm. it, because there is not a clear distinction between these two roles in, in the evangelical church. And, uh, and so I think that a very key thing, I think what I have laid out, I think if that philosophy was adopted in the church, that would help answer a lot of questions. It would, uh, it would allow people to think, okay, this is, there's two roles. There's the musician, but the musician doesn't have to be a pastor. As long as the musician is not doing anything pastoral, such as vetting the music, um, then they can they can do that without needing to be a pastor. But if they, um, that way the team of elders, they, they can 
they can still have the active participation of vetting the music, listening to the music, and possibly the song leader sends the music, says, hey, I like these songs, what do you think about them? And then they get approved. Um, but as long as the person listening and vetting the music is is a pastor, and, and I did make a point to say it doesn't necessarily have to be an ordained pastor, just someone who is operating in and with the ordained pastors as well, as long as they're qualified. Um, and as long as they're, you know, seeking toward ordination. And I say this because I'm not ordained. I have sought toward ordination. I have worked toward it before. I have just never reached it. Um, for one reason or another, God has not allowed me to, uh, to pursue that path to its, to its end. I hope one day to get there, but I, I'm not, um, but I, I I do think that that is something important to note is that not all pastors are musicians, not all musicians are pastors, um, and there's a place for both. So I guess that brings me to, I don't know, the maybe it's not my last question, but wouldn't it be easier to just say in the verses that you shared in the mm-hmm. Corinthians 14, mm-hmm. First Corinthians 14, we are told to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Well, that one is the, that one Sorry, is the that's bring a hymn. Ify, yeah. yeah. I, I, either way, we're, we're committed in the, the New Testament to sing. Yeah. Right. I, the, uh, Paul also says that the worship should be done in good order. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it would probably be a good idea, good and necessary consequence to have somebody up there kind of keeping people in, in tempo and Absolutely. making sure, you, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you say rather than the worrying about all this, the rest of this stuff, wouldn't it be just simpler to say uh, that that's why we would have a music minister or somebody up there leading, leading the worship, leading the singing? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much my entire my entire argument all summed up into one, uh, one succinct question. But um, pithy? Would you call it pithy? Sure, it's not quite pithy. <laughs> I, I'll call it whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of my my whole point is I think in order to have orderly music, you need to have a you need to have at least a song leader. Um, mm-hmm. And if you are saying that. Uh, if you are saying that it's okay to have a song leader, like what, what is the biblical argument for having a song leader? Just, just someone just Rosaria Butterfield with her pitch pipe singing the Psalms. What is the biblical argument to having that? You know, it's the goodness or consequence. We need it. Well, is there a passage in scripture that explains the institutionalization of a song leader because it was needed? Yes. It's Chinaniah. And so, I think that even in the, even in like the most conservative places, you know, the, the scripture that most accurately, you know, presents the argument for having someone up there leading an orderly worship service is that passage with Chenaniah and he was, he understood music. So he led it. Um, and, uh, and so it's hard for me to say, all right, we can have that, but we can't have instruments. Um, when it's in the same passage that talks about the instruments. Ultimately, if you're not having instruments, you don't need a worship leader. 
you need you need a song leader to get up there and to do that and you probably have some you probably have a pastor leading the liturgy and you probably have those two roles clearly divided for that reason but it's a much less uh involved position um the church I visited today was that way uh there there's a pianist and that was it as far as instrumentation mm-hmm. the pastor was the one who who led the songs uh, he he did he did he led all the liturgy he preached he read all the scripture and he led the songs, um, and uh, and we did two songs out of the Trinity hymnal. And so, if we know we have songs, we know we need a song leader to keep things organized, even if it's just the pastor. Um, you know, then we have well, what are we going to sing? We have the psalter that's gold. Um, we have hymnals which are heavily vetted just in and of themselves they were they had to be vetted to get published into the hymnal so i'd say most hymnals uh you can kind of pick up and just choose you still need to look at the songs and and verify but like if the trinity hymnal uh is the is presbyterian hymnal you know that one was it was vetted by people that believe the same theology i do in with Baptist hymnals, you have both Calvinists and Arminians putting songs in there, and so you kind of have to figure which ones are the Arminian ones, which ones are the Calvinist ones, and they're pretty much all Arminian ones, but uh, you get one or two Calvinist ones in there. But um, you know, if you know what you're getting for, if you know what you're getting with with a hymnal, then you can pretty much pick that up and open it, and you're going to be fine. Um, the question then becomes, why not just this altar, or why not just the hymnal? Uh, not if you just sing the Psalter, I think I heard someone say it this way, you're getting all shadow and no type. Um, and that's what I was trying to say earlier with the Isaac Watts conversation. I just couldn't remember what the quote was. Uh, you're getting all shadow and no type, um, which would require a Psalter that has been, uh, Christianized, uh, which is what Isaac Watts did. Um, I, and I'll be honest, I have not read through his Psalter. I don't know if I, if I did, if that would make, if I'd feel better or worse about that whole conversation or not. Um, but that's why I think people feel drawn to write hymns is because we don't get the completed work of Christ from the Psalter. We get a shadow of the completed work. Um, is that enough for some? It is. And I just crave more. Um, However, there's this interesting idea of, well, all we do is, is the hymnal. If all you're singing is what's in the published hymnal, then you are basically saying that that hymnal is a closed canon, and at which point you're kind of inadvertently equating it with Scripture. You're saying, these are the songs that are approved, and I will add no more. Well, why won't you add any more? Because nothing that is written today is good. By what standard? Um, you know, if, if nothing that you write is good if nothing that is new that that is new is good then that would basically say the hymnal is perfect it's not the hymnal's not perfect it's not scripture um and i don't think anyone going down that rabbit hole would disagree with me on that um so then you get the question of how do you vet new music and that's why this podcast exists um so we have the Psalter, we have various hymnals, we have new songs being written, 
uh, they just haven't gone through the rigorous vetting that older songs have already gone through. And uh, so ultimately, that is, that's why I want to help people vet, vet music. I want people to, to get a standard for vetting music. You know, I want people to feel comfortable going to church and uh, knowing that the songs that they sing are, uh, are good and acceptable and pleasing. That's fair. Yeah. I honestly, it makes me want to learn more just about, well, for one, I think it'd be really good to study what the history of the role of the music director or song leader has been Mm -hmm. throughout history. Find out, trace that back to where it kind of, where the idea came from originally. Yeah. I think that would be incredibly helpful. I think it would as well. And also, I think it would be interesting to figure out, I don't know, good and necessary consequence. You can't just bend that, I wouldn't think, any way you want. No. And so I would want to make sure, like you you mentioned, for instance, everyone bringing a song like at Offertory or something like that. But you're going to run into some flack there, too. Yes, you will. Because, you know, well, A, is to giving these tithes and offerings, does that belong in the worship service or not? But laying that aside, um, is the concept of special music a is something prescribed? Yeah. You know, in the Bible. Yeah. And uh, does it belong there? And a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, that, that that's interesting because right, the, it, it, the focus is on one person. It's on the soloist yeah. or trio or whoever is singing, and so there is some concern there that you know it's more of a performance rather than than worship. But anyway, yeah. I don't I don't know I don't know if you want to go down that rabbit hole today or not. Well, and since we're maybe already... what we do. Well, I'll let you respond for sure. (laughs) Since we're already like pretty far into our third track already, um, I I probably won't respond to that this this time around. But you're exactly right in that it does raise a lot of questions. And I I keep coming back to this idea of it would be so much easier just to sing the Psalms. Mm -hmm. Acapella, done. You don't have to worry about any of that. It -hmm. would be so much easier. Um, to just know, to just sing what we know is prescribed. That would be absolutely easier. Um, but it's all shadow and no type. And, uh, and I believe that we are called to do, uh, believe that we are called, we were given more. Not, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say called to in that or commanded to sing more. Uh, I don't believe that we are commanded to sing more than the Psalms. I, I don't. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe that we are given more than the Psalms to sing, but we as individual churches can choose specifically what to sing. Uh, I do find it very interesting that of the three types of music that we are uh, given to sing, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, there's mm-hmm. only one type that we know undeniably what in the world it's talking about, and that's Psalms. And the vast majority of churches don't sing any. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I think that yeah. is, I think that's wrong. I, I think that we should all be singing psalms because if if nothing else, we know what psalms are. Like we don't have to question what is this, what is a hymn, what is a spiritual song. Um, we absolutely know what the psalms are. So why why would we endlessly debate about what the other two mean and completely ignore the one that we have no doubt? It's just that that's mind boggling to me. Um, but that's why I am PP. But <laughs> yeah. Psalms Prefer- preferred. preferred. I was going to say primarily PPP but. Psalms primarily preferred. That's just the palms. Yeah. So there's that. Um, it's, it's interesting how that ends up being. Um, but we are well into this episode. Uh, keep a lookout on our website. Cause I am positive that we will have a bonus episode in the show notes because this is a very, <laughs> very long episode. We knew that going into it, that we were going to, to move some stuff around, cut some stuff, make a bonus episode out of this. But yeah, keep, keep a lookout in your, uh, in our website in the show notes for some exclusive bonus content. Don't know what it's going to be yet, but it's, it's going to be special. It's going to be very special. It's going to be the special, be the special music, music of the episode of, of the yes, episode. Yes. yes, that is what it's going to be. It's going to be the offertory. And we invite be. all of you to give to our Patreon page, which does, which not, does exist. not exist. Yes. Make, we invite you to start and go fund me for us. <laughs> Maybe it's just to get us to be to quiet. Maybe yeah. it's, yeah. <laughs> anyway, there's that. But we do, have, we, we have some great shows coming your way. Um, we do. Honestly, beyond just this, I mean, we have, uh, we're, we're trying to, you know. Yeah. So I, I really enjoy the interviews. We're trying to wind some are. more of those up. Um, we're, so this originally was going to be the last episode of season two, but then we just keep coming up with some more ideas. <laughs> so after this episode, hopefully what we will have uh, is a follow-up to this exact episode where I, uh, I think I'm going to go a little bit deeper into the two hats. Uh, I want to, I want to explore what it means to be a song leader. Uh, I'll probably get into a lot of instrumentation and stuff. Some of the stuff that ends up being in the bonus episode for this one, will probably get talked about again in the next one. I also want to talk about the role of the music minister as one of the pastor elder overseer, and I, I want to kind of dive deeper into those. I do encourage you over the next week to send us an email, uh, just offering uh, your input. Uh, I would like to do. Mm-hmm. I would like to answer any questions anyone has. Uh, these questions might help me to better, you know, research into some things. Um, yeah. So that's that's what the next episode is going to be, uh, and then we're going to have another interview uh, with. A uh, guy named Justin Ray. Uh, he what? he uh, is on Slack. So slack.techreformation.com. We hadn't done that oh. one yet. Um, yeah, no kidding. Uh, he's he's he joined that. Uh, he has a podcast called If Songs Could Preach. Fantastic podcast. Um, I reached out to him. And, uh, we have become very quick friends. We text each other a lot. So I'm I'm excited to. Uh, to bring him on the show and um, have a nice, fun conversation with him. And then 
I think we're going to do a couple episodes of song versus song. We haven't done that in a while. I've got a couple yeah. pairings lined up. One will probably be the last episode of season two. The next will probably be the first episode of season three, uh, just based on the content of the songs. And uh, so more on that later. Though, as I've mentioned, one of them is a Chris Tomlin song. We love you, Chris. Awesome. We just don't like that song. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's like our version of hate the hate the uh, uh, love the sinner, love the uh, hate yeah, the sin. Hate, yeah, lo- love the sinner, hate the sin. Anyway, before before anything else gets before anything else distracts us from wrapping up, uh, I am going to close this out. And I'm going to say, let all with heart and voice before his throne rejoice. Praise is his gracious choice. Alleluia. Amen. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the listening to the Balm and Gilead podcast. We love hearing from you, so email us at thereis at balmcast.com. We are a part of the Tech Reformation family of podcasts, and you can discuss our show and much more at slack.techreformation.com. We'll see you there. If you enjoyed the Balm and Gilead podcast, please encourage others to listen. We value your feedback So rate, review, and recommend the show in your podcast app of choice. And with that, we'll see you next time on the Balm in Gilead podcast.